Shut it out, walk a mile, serve it ancient city style. Talk it out, babble on, battle for your life, babble on. That's gossip, what you on, money don't talk, rip that. Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week? (laughs) You think every week? Question mark? (laughs) Starting from... Starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema, and this week is 1916. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Selly. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Covell. I am a filmmaker. And I can actually make good on that now, this episode, because I made a film this year. You made a film? I did. What? What's going on with that? Uh, it's almost done. I still have to uh, plug the final musical score in and get the the sound mix all done, but it is very, very close. Does, does it have a title, or is that yes. still secret? Through the Trees is the title. Oh, I haven't that's heard a, that that's before. A, that's a That's you Whoa, know. hot scoops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Through the, the show, Trees. The show with hot scoops and even hotter uh, old factoids. I see, I see. Hot Scoops is just making me think of, like, the idea of a spicy ice cream, which maybe mm. exists somewhere, but... It it for sure does. Would probably be bad. Um, so, yeah, we're a podcast where we uh, go through film history one year at a time, as is implied in uh, the title and all that. We're not doing so good on the, the one week part of one week, one year. One week uh, starting now. <laughs> starting now. Um... Uh, but yeah, we're we're taking a journey through film history, uh, uh, very methodically, and right now we're in a a very interesting silent era. Um, but as we were saying, uh, it's been about six months since the last it has. episode. It's been a minute. Um, there, that's mostly my fault because uh, I don't know how to dedicate time to things, and also. I was unemployed, and now I'm not unemployed, and uh, also I moved across the country. There um, you go. Just that. Just that yeah. little tidbit. Yeah. Uh, so that made it a little more difficult to continue making the podcast. But I, it's a it's a project that I'm very happy with, and it's a project that I'm very proud of, and I, I think you may be too, Glenn. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lots of fun. So we, And we learn a lot, and that's the main thing, is that we learn... And you're mm. just kind of we don't re- we ride. don't really care if the listener is learning anything, it's yeah. really just for us. <laughs> um, you you joke, but uh, no, I don't joke. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this is very serious. <laughs> um, well, uh, any was has anything been going on in the last six months of your life, Glenn? Besides, I making mean, a, we we're both. We, I made a movie. That was cool. That was fun. Um, I'm excited for it to be all done and I can finally like really show it to people. Um, I haven't both, seen it yet. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, we're both recording in new places because I, I moved back into my apartment in in Brooklyn, uh, which is nice. If there's a video version of this podcast, you can see my uh, very on-brand decor behind me. Um uh yeah those are those are the biggest things i mean we're still you know a lot of indoor time still a lot of indoor yeah 
Hey, hey, maybe we're on the eve of another lockdown and more unemployment, so the podcast could pick right back up again. Yeah, prime podcasting uh, <laughs> weather. Um, well, we like to uh, orient everybody, start everybody out uh, with a little bit of context for what's happening in the year that we're discussing. So, Glenn, would you read us the news of the year? The news of the year, 1916. News from the front. The Royal Army Medical Corps conducts the first ever blood transfusion. Paris bombed by German zeppelins. And not one month later, the Battle of Verdun begins. Anarchist activist Emma Goldman is arrested for lecturing on birth control. Margaret Sanger opens the first birth control clinic. The light switch is invented. The Irish declare their own republic. The Easter Rising ends in 485 dead. John D. Rockefeller becomes the first billionaire. Blood in the water. Shark attacks off the New Jersey shore kill four. Woodrow Wilson creates the National Park Service. The crew of Ernest Shackleton's expedition is rescued off Elephant Island. The first modern grocery store, Piggly Wiggly, opens in Memphis. Murderous Mary, the killer elephant, is hanged. Finally. <laughs> But the humans probably deserved it. The mad monk Rasputin is finally murdered. Or was he? The Endicott Johnson factories gain a labor victory. The first 40-hour work week. Mary Pickford is the first movie star to sign a million-dollar contract. Samuel Goldfish, later renamed Samuel Goldwyn, establishes Goldwyn Pictures. The Society of Motion Picture Engineers is founded standardizing film technology and causing headaches for Chris to this day. Some good films this year. Some Speaking of, yeah. Some that I wasn't a fan of. Okay. But um all right. But all all worth talking about. I think. That's our job. Yeah. Yeah. Should we start with the uh with the shorts? I think so. I think that seems a Do good place to start. Do we ever come up start. with a name for this segment? Yes, it is one r- one week, one reel. I forgot about that. One week, one reel. <laughs> it's been a minute. It has. Why don't we start with The Rink? Charlie Indeed. Chaplin picture. Yeah, classic. Um, I hadn't seen this one, but I think this this is a sort of... Uh, I definitely heard about this one before. Um, it's just one of those... You know, it's one of those that like shows up in like, the DVD collections or whatever. Um uh this is i maybe not the first but one of the first uh films that charlie chaplin made under the mutual films uh contract um he hasn't made any movies with them before this i don't think i could be wrong on that cut that out um but it's a it's it's a it's a fairly standard it's what you think of when you think of like a charlie chaplin short it's a lot of hijinks a lot of mishaps silly yeah he's being very silly um, it all kind of culminates in a scene in a, a, uh, a roller skating rink. Yes. I almost said yeah. blading and that would be a little, old too hip for a little too the, old, 80s. the olden times. Yeah. Um, I was going to say nineties, but yeah, there's some good, uh, the, it opens with him working in a restaurant. Um, and I feel like restaurants are always ideal locations for, for comedy. There's a lot of, a lot, just a lot of hijinks that can happen in a restaurant. They get a lot of 
traction out of the like the in and outdoors in the kitchen, mm-hmm. for example, and like trays that are unstable. Just classic yep. kitchen gag or restaurant gags. Uh, some like some some jokes with some melons and a guy's bald head. I don't actually remember what that joke is, but I have it written down in my notes. Um, another thing that I have written down is that it's very difficult to tell the difference between comedy facial hair and regular facial hair in old movies. Because <laughs> even people's normal facial hair looks ridiculous in 1916. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's like, oh, this is like a joke character with this like wild mustache. I'm like, no, that's just his normal, <laughs> his normal mustache. You know, in, the, in one of the movies that we're talking about later, I had uh, a similar trouble uh distinguishing between the way people looked in 1916 and like a kind of heightened makeup because there was a main character coming coming up who i thought was supposed to look gnarly and evil but he just looked like that mm-hmm. uh and i don't know maybe it's just 1916 yeah i think it's probably it, but that's that's my point it's like it's difficult to tell because there are also a lot of like very sort of outsized uh comedy characters in these two yeah um uh this one's got a lot of like a lot of separate kind of story threads that all kind of uh they all kind of collide together in the the hmm. titular rink uh much like the people skating in the rink they all collide uh, um back of the dvd cover it's it's one of those things where it's you know people everyone's got you know secrets and then, like, there's a big scene where all, like, all the secrets come out and just, like, chaos happens. Um, another fun note that I took during this was uh, the bowler hat is an underappreciated flirting tool, which I agree with. Like, you can do, <laughs> you can do a lot of tricks with the bowler hat yeah. that Charlie Chaplin is, you know, very well known for. And it's, like, you know, that, that is something that has been, that is, like, a, a prop that has been kind of lost Especially when you've got a wall to lean up against, and you can kind of like make exactly it flip, make flip make up it in the make air. it yeah. Um, but I thought about that while watching this movie. Um, I don't know what is. Do you have any other thoughts on this one? I mean, it's you know, it's really solid work. Uh, uh, I feel like a lot of the Charlie Chaplin stuff that we've seen, especially by this point where he sort of hit his stride, is. Just here's a setting for him to do zany things in, mm-hmm. and like it's a different setting each time. Yeah. Um. Uh. But like, you know, I think the thing that we were both shocked by when he first uh, started was just how confident and good of a performer and like physical comedian he was, just like right out of the gate. Yeah. Um, and Definitely. he's just fantastic. Like he's a flawless, per- like physical performer. He's very funny. Uh, mm-hmm. And very magnetic. Not uh, a flawless and, human being by any means, but yeah, as, no. as a performer, uh, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a ton of great like uh, just like choreography and things like like you were mentioning, like mm-hmm. people coming in and out of like the kitchen in a restaurant and sort of like, and it it is the sort of thing where I think I didn't even really necessarily even start to appreciate how good some of that stuff is until I'd seen some of the, 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 the also rans of this era of sort of like the other sort of like slapstick comedies that were being made around the same time or a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. that are not nearly as good. 
that just right. do not work on the same level where it's like you can't you, they're trying for the same thing they're trying to have like all this like fun slapstick comedy happen and it's just like ugh, it's not it's not working and then you know Chaplin shows up and is just a a yeah a pitch perfect clown in the the, the sense of like what clown work is in its uh, more technical sense, I guess. I don't know. A technical clown. Yes. Along with the choreography, I, I, I thought that the skating in this movie was really good. Like the, like the way that he looks on skates. It, he, mm-hmm. with, he moves with so much confidence and ease and flow. Um, I don't know how long skating had been a thing at this point. Uh, but he's definitely an expert. And also there's a point where he's like writing out somebody's bill in the in the beginning and I was really happy or, or it 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 tickled me that he wrote spaghetti with like a y. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, there's a great moment just at at the very end where uh Chaplin is escaping on his skates. Um and it sort of it looks to be he's making this sort of like you know, uh, sort of more graceful getaway on the skates, and then he tr- he trips and falls right as it cuts. Yeah, um, that's like the very last thing you see, which is great. Really going going out on a good laugh there. Yeah, yeah, like at the the very last second too, split like split yeah. second. It's not triumphant. It's like stupid the way yeah. it ends. <laughs> Uh, the other short that we watched for this year uh, was The Ocean Waif, mm. which is seems to be the the final widely available Elise mm-hmm. Guy-Blanchet film. Uh, there's yeah. at least one of hers that is existing in an archive somewhere, but it's not on any uh, release or online anywhere as far as I can tell. So it's our it's our last... Our last outing with Elise Guy. Yeah. Unless some other ones get, you know, come out and are, like, released before we record another episode. Um, <laughs> which is unlikely. Um, but yeah, it was, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit bittersweet, I guess, to just, like, having followed her, her career over, you know, however many years it was. Um, and be like, oh, this is the last one. Yeah. Um, and even this one is not complete. There's some some chunks missing, at least of the one that I watched. Um, that yeah. I think are lost. I think there's like there's a few minutes missing, but it's it. Their titles telling you kind of what happens yeah. in the missing parts, which is not uncommon for movies of this era. Mm-hmm. Um, the I don't know. Should we should we describe the plot? It's uh, it's a weird plot for a movie. It is. It's it's a kind of like strange combination of really like mellow like dark melodrama and also like zany hijinks. Yeah. Which um, I I don't know if that if it pulls that off completely. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it, it definitely you feel a lot of the sort of tonal whiplash of sort of like it gets very dark. And yeah. then at other times it is very silly. Um, I, I started the movie thinking, okay, this is a silly movie with a bit of a dark setup. 
uh, but it's a silly movie. And then by the end, I was like, oh my god, like this is <laughs> this is <Yeah>. uh, this is <laughs> really edgy. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a a a, a young woman who was, an ocean waif. She's an ocean waif. <laughs> you, um, you know, an ocean waif. Uh, she's being raised, she, she was found on the beach as a baby, uh, by this, uh, bad dude, and she was raised by him, and she hated every minute of it, and so at, the, at some point, she, uh, was able to run away, um, and, uh, he, uh sh- she runs to a, like an, an abandoned, an, an, yeah. yeah, an abandoned mansion, uh, which is then promptly bought, I think, by a wealthy writer who moves in yeah, with or his like, butler. Or like subletted or something, yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, they learn that the mansion is supposedly haunted by the daughter of the previous owner. And so naturally uh, that leads to some sort of mistaken identity hijinks where he's living in the house... And Millie, the ocean waif, is sort of, like, also living in the house, and he doesn't know that, and he thinks it's a ghost, and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, she's, like, she's, um, uh, she's staying up in the, in the attic, kind of, like, living, uh, uh, kind of the, the life of a, of a ratatouille rat, you know? Just, like, sneaking into the kitchen (laughs) to, to grab food every once in a while, um, until... Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of like really good gags with the the butler um, making like really like zany faces, like thinking that he's seen a ghost or something, mm-hmm. uh, or, or seeing seeing the uh, the the tablecloth pulling all of the food away, like off the side of the screen, and he goes, <laughs> "Oh no, <laughs> the um, ghost!" And there's a there's eventually a point where the novelist guy is uh sleeping and he hears a noise up in the attic uh and he takes his gun upstairs as you do as you do there's a lot of like really overzealous pistol wielding this year um, yeah well i mean at least it's like he hears some commotion upstairs gets his gun the, that yeah, part that fair. part yeah. is slightly understandable what comes next is less so <laughs> um how would you phrase what comes next? I well, mean, like... I mean, I, I forget the exact mechanics of it, but he, he sees that it is not, in fact, a ghost. It is, in fact, an ocean waif. Um, or a, a young woman who's living up in the attic, surviving off his table scraps. Uh, and he thinks, you know, eh, you know, as a joke, maybe I'll threaten her with my gun. You know, <laughs> just as as a fun joke. Um, and... Uh, you know, I I was just talking about the 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 sort of underappreciated art of uh, using a, a bowler hat as a flirting prop. Guns, mm. not so much. Not a great flirting prop. Um, he did not take yeah. that class, however, and so he is taking a very weird uh, uh, stance on on He's... trying to woo this woman. He says, he... come out, Miss Ghost, or I'll shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and well, because and... it's like, it's played as this sort of like, kind of cheeky, like funny little, like meat cute thing. 
And it's yeah. like, he's got a gun. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 1916 was a, a different time, I guess. Uh, well, eventually, like, they kind of clear up the whole situation. She's not a ghost, and, and Hawkins, the butler, uh, isn't accused of being too much of a, of a lush to understand that, uh, <laughs> that ghosts aren't real. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, she explains her story to him about, uh, uh, growing up with an abusive stepfather and running away and everything like that. Um, and, uh then oh god I, I missed well he he at some point tells her that he is engaged right does he tell her i don't know if he even tells her um, like i feel like i felt we, like i was sprung the, on that <laughs> yeah i mean we as the audience learn it it's sort of like so she is just sort of living in the house with him at this point yeah um but then and he also finds inspiration for uh, his... He moves into this house as, as a sort of way of getting inspiration for his next novel uh, uh, because he wants a sort of uh, environment that will inspire his writing. And so he decides to sort of adapt her, sto- her life story mm. into um, his next novel. Right. Um, and so the, this, this novelist, Ronald Roberts, it's a very Stanley name, <laughs> um so then yeah so at some point we find out that uh he's engaged his fiance shows up um and it's sort of like oh 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 no what's she gonna think you know and so his fiance whose name is i do not know if i read it, read it down um but she sees them uh kissing and yeah. and he's like no 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 she's just an ocean wave that I'm protecting. Um, and then she says, "Is kissing part of the protection?" Yeah, is like, oh really? Very good protecting you're doing with all that smooching. Um, <laughs> and so Millie kind of sees sees this and it's like, oh, I'll, I'll I'll it'll never be the same. I guess I have to leave now. Yeah. Um. And then this is the part where it gets bad oh yeah upsetting um you know at at this point it was just hijinks and then she ends up going back to her dad or her stepfather um and you know she's been gone for a number of months probably Mm -hmm. uh and she walks back into her her stepfather's shack and he says slick looking kid she's a woman now and i ain't her father no nope. awful oh don't God. like that don't like it um so um yeah content warning up ahead but uh uh he uh he says they should get married to his stepdaughter and then he grabs her and basically uh attempts to rape her um and uh there is um another person who's sort of like involved in the river shack realm community yeah uh i'm trying to remember is he is he introduced before this scene yeah he was like very briefly though Mm. um uh but sem sees what's going on and uh shoots her uh stepfather whose name is high jessup 
Um, and uh, Sem runs away, uh, and Roberts, the writer, arrives just as the 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 gun is shot, and Roberts is accused of the crime. Um, right, because it's like he had he showed up with a rifle that uses the same bullets as the rifle that Sem used. So it's like they match the bullet that killed the stepfather to uh, Ronald Roberts's gun. Yeah. Um, and so he goes on trial for murder. Which is like, <laughs> at this point, it's like, I thought this was like a fun rom-com. Yeah. And now it's like very dark, very tragic. Um, uh, his fiance leaves him at this point for some guy named The Count. Which, she doesn't want all this messiness. Yeah, yeah, uh, that must that must be rough though to have your fiance leave you for the count. I feel like that's just not what anyone wants to hear. Um, but then Sam, the the fisherman, who I feel like is sort of coded as like kind of uh, like on the spectrum or something. Yeah. He's yeah, he's coded in in the the old nineteen sixteen way of like oh he's simple, but it's like it's not it's not really done in it in like uh, an overly. It's not hateful or anything. It's not yeah it's not done in as yikesy of a way as I probably would have expected a movie from nineteen sixteen. Um, it also might just be that he's just like he lives on the beach and is just not uh, does not have the best social uh, intelligence. <laughs> I mean, um, I have I have dreamt, certainly, of li- living a simple life on the beach and just surfing every day. I mean, haven't we all? <laughs> Isn't that, that is sort of like the cliche of, like, retirement, right? It's like, I'll just go live on a beach somewhere. He's, um, he's, living, the, he's living the life even before yeah. uh, he's retired. Um, as someone uh, who does not like going to the beach, uh, that sounds like hell. Um, <laughs> but so he... Hell. He then confesses, Sam does, to yeah. the murder, and then he Which gets... is crazy, because he was literally, like, defending somebody. Yeah. But, like, they want to they want to get him anyway, even though he was, like, saving someone's life, basically. Yeah. Um, um, but he gets... So they, they he chase gets, him. Yeah. They chase him all the way through the forest, and eventually uh, up to the edge of a cliff... And then he jumps off the cliff. Loose end tied up. Yep. Uh, and then that's kind of like the climax of the movie. And then uh, there's a title card that says a silver lining. Uh, because even though uh, Millie and uh, Roberts are supposed to be like a kind of, I don't know, are sort of framed as a father-daughter situation... She gets together with him in the end. Are they? Well, his fiance says to Roberts that he should only look at her as a paternal figure. Right. Um, and uh, she's a lot younger than him, definitely. Uh, but if we don't want to look at it that way, then it is a silver yeah. lining. Um. True. True. Um. Yeah. So it does. It does try to end on a on a more of an uplifting note um which is nice considering how grim it gets 
Um, I don't, I, I did appreciate the, the mix of sort of more kind of lighthearted and comedic stuff with kind of this like very intense kind of dramatic stuff, just cause I feel like a lot of the people that we've been following over the last couple of years of film history have been very much in one camp or the other, like yeah. Charlie Chaplin's doing his, like, real wacky slapstick comedy stuff. And then, like, Lois Weber and D.W. Griffith are doing these, like, incredibly, like, overwrought, operatic, like, grim tragedy <laughs> movies. Yeah, and it, there's no middle ground anymore. And I feel like Aliski has always been one of, one of the few people that can sort of, like, kind of... I don't really think she pulls it off in this one, but I think it tends to sort of pull a bit from both. A bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if she's tried so much to do both in one thing, but we've seen right. her do great drama and great comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she does know how how that works, but yeah. Uh, a tribute, a tribute to Eliski. Um, we. Oui. The OG. Uh, uh. I don't know the OG. Pour out some absinthe for her. Um, and by pour it out, I mean pour it into my mouth. Um, by pour, by pour out, you mean, uh, pour it into a glass and kind of swish it around and then pour it out because you're rinsing the glass in absinthe. Oh, I don't, I don't, when I do a rinse, I don't pour it back out. I drink it. <laughs> That's efficient. I, like I, that. I drink the excess in that, in that case, or I just leave it in there sometimes, you know, mm, a visit with the green goblin. Oh, I mean the the green fairy is the the absinthe uh, term, but uh, I like Green Goblin because I just saw Spider Man. Um. Uh. So yeah, those are our two shorts. Unless uh, is there anything else? Any other thoughts you have? About I don't have anything the ocean else. Wave? Uh, we are. Uh, oh yeah, uh, nothing else on the ocean wave. We're definitely trying to. Uh, now that we both are. Probably more busy than we were before. Uh, right, we both we're both out. we're both employed. We can go outside <laughs> for the time being. Um, yeah, but uh, we're trying to figure out how we can maybe reduce the amount of research and whatnot that that, that this uh, show yeah. takes. Without, maybe um, instead of watching like eight hours of movies per episode, maybe try to bring it down to like four to five. We definitely need to give shorts their due. Um, yes, but uh, shorts with are still an episode, a big, uh, yeah. Um, but with an episode thing. with so much vampires in it, uh, we yeah. had to scale back a little bit. Mm-hmm. We'll see how it turns out. But we 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 still want to give every year its justice. Yeah, we don't we don't want to skim over too much. We we want to be as uh, not even exhausted, but you know we want to talk about the year as a whole not just you know like a one movie little... yeah because yeah. you know what all those other podcasts they only do one movie an episode yeah we other do podcasts that all don't take 30 gosh dang hours to to make each one <laughs> <laughs> okay well speaking of vampires shall we enter the t- take a bite shall we take a bite at a ah, bowl indeed Indeed we shall. Let us get a nice big ol' scoop from the cereal bowl, our film cereal segment. Les Vampires. 
Le Vampires. The best uh, vampire uh, film serial featuring no actual vampires. It's one of those kind of winner by default situations, yeah. but yeah. If this is your first episode of the show, and because you saw that there was a new episode after six months, uh, Le Vampires is a film serial uh, about a, a, a gang of criminals called the Vampires. Yes, not about vampires. Yeah. Uh, it's by Louis Fouillade, um, who uh, was basically the, the successor to Elise Guy Blachet at Gaumont mm-hmm. um, after she left to the U.S. to form Solax. And he is another person who does comedy and drama. Um, this is true. Uh, but uh, right now, he has been fixated for the last couple of years on crime serials, I think. Uh, really seedy stuff. Um, but some oh, of these oh, episodes so, were oh so good. <laughs> some of these episodes were temporarily banned uh, in France because they were too seedy, too unseemly. Hmm. We don't want to talk about the vampires. Too intense for theaters. <laughs> what they couldn't show you. This is the this is the unrated DVD. The, uh, the unrated, uh, the unrated Kino Lorber uh, uh, <laughs> restoration of Les Vampires, <laughs> and there's a there, there there's a big there's a big like uh, like red stamp over it saying too hot. <laughs> yeah, that for flagrant use of the word damn once. <laughs> um, so I don't know if we want to go episode by episode. I feel like there's a lot to cover if we do there's that. There's a lot of plot to cover for sure because a lot of this... things happen. So we watched the first three episodes, which came out in 1915 for the last episode mm-hmm. uh, of the podcast. Uh, and I think, you know, we were still getting a feel for like what Le Vampires was. And I think so were the people making it because it was like it yeah semi-improvisational uh between the episodes <laughs> <laughs> where everything was going um uh but so i i feel like one once we got into these episodes it kind of started settling into its groove um mm. and like less establishing like the first three were yeah well i think it, it is important to remember i think that uh uh Fouillade's previous film serial phantomas was based on a uh, pulp novel series. Yes. And so he he had, you know, he was working off of a pre-existing, a pre-written uh, story. Whereas this he wrote himself as a sort of like Fentumas-esque crime story. Sort of taking all the things that he liked about those and sort of building his own kind of mythology and characters and things like that. And so it does feel a little bit looser, a little bit less sort of uh intricately plotted sometimes and a bit more haphazard i guess um but that i also think that's kind of part of the fun of it is it's like you never really know what's going to happen it's sometimes stuff just just uh you know it takes some big some big turns the plotting can get kind of wild in this in this yeah um i will say though like i i you know i appreciate him for uh, trying to create his own sort of property and, and mythos and everything. I do feel like I prefer Phantomas. Um, I think that, like, the 
we you know we can get more into the way that Lam- Le Vampires is, but after having watched all of it, <clears throat> I kind of um, I really like how tight Phantomas is, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that the tightness of the script is reflected in the tightness of like the editing and the piece as a whole. Yes, um, and so it's it's a lot more propulsive than Vampires, which uh, I think Vampires is based on all of these twists and turns, but it's like, uh, uh, I don't know. It Phantomas has these really big set piece moments that vampires doesn't quite reach. I'm thinking particularly in, um, uh, in, I think episode three of Phantomas where he, the main character of Phantomas, who is a, a crime Lord, uh, a supervillain, basically. A supervillain. He tricks his underling into getting some, uh, getting like a stash of loot that is inside of a, that was stashed up in a church bell. Oh, yeah. And Amazing. He, so the guy goes up into this giant church bell and, and then he pulls the ladder out from under him and says, okay, see you later, guy. Uh, and he just has to hang there until he, Let's go or fall and falls. Um, the guy's able to hold on all night, and then when the church bell rings in the morning, blood and jewels rain down <laughs> from the ceiling. Onto blood the and jewels and stolen and like, jewels. That is so cool. Like it's <laughs> unbelievably rad. And like I wish that I wish that I could get something that wild with with Live Vampire. It doesn't I do quite think, reach that level. I do think just like that single image, almost of like a church bell ringing in the morning, and then blood and stolen jewels falling out of it is like that sums up the vibe of these. It's like it's very pulpy. It's very kind of over the top and lurid, but yeah. there's something just so kind of like fun about it, also. <laughs> Um, a lot of, like, kind of macabre things. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, two things I was very reminded of watching this. One is Batman. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of Batman-esque things that happen of just, like, we'll, we'll rob this, like, high society ball while they're all, put them all to sleep with sleeping gas and then, like, steal the jewels. (laughs) And that's, like, that just feels very batman ask to me of like a, this yeah. sort of thing that would happen in it also there's like a scene in i think it's that we covered last episode where they go to an opera where someone's wearing a bat costume and very it's very batman it's very batman um the other thing it reminded me a lot of is tintin which mm. is uh belgian and is from uh several decades later but is still there is a sort of belgian slash french adventure serial kind of vibe i guess that the two share mm-hmm. um that uh i don't know you definitely it's like so, some of the character archetypes some of the way in which stuff is staged um i feel like mazamet feels like a character out yes. of tintin mazamet i think is maybe the thing that feels the most tintin where it's like Mazamet could just be a Tintin character because he's so silly and like clumsy and comedic, but it also he's in this like kind of grand like adventure crime story. So hmm. he he gets caught up in all these these <laughs> crazy situations. 
Um, this one, this these this batch of episodes introduces us to. Uh, I don't remember if this happened earlier or not, but Mazumet gets wildly famous uh, at a certain point, <laughs> and uh, we and suddenly is just like super rich. Um, he's like in one of the episodes, he's living alone in like a fancy apartment and like having women over and like serving drinks and things like that. And then the next episode. They're like, hey, remember your son that you have? You have to yeah. take care of him still. And so they send him his son. And Mazumet's son, I think, might be my favorite character in <laughs> the entire serial. He has a great moment, definitely. I want to. He I, has I, several. I, will, I wrote down um, uh, Mazumet. He, so he became rich because in one of the plots of one of the episodes, there was uh, some Americans who had uh, uh, fled to Europe with $200,000 from a millionaire, and the millionaire said that whoever caught them could just keep the $200,000. <laughs> so so Mazamet became rich. And then he had a butler and a nice hotel, or a nice um, uh, apartment and everything like that. And the butler uh, uh, says to um, uh, Gourand, uh, he says, I'm afraid Mazamet may be out gallivanting. I'm honestly ashamed of him. <laughs> Uh, which, yeah, he's a silly dude. Uh, he was a vampire, but for a second, but he didn't have the guts to be one. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Eustache Mazamet is the name of his son. Yes. Um, so, I mean, so I guess some of the big plot things that happen in this is we get introduced to, uh, Moreno. Mm-hmm. Who the leader is a, of a rival gang. A rival gang to the vampires. And he becomes this sort of, like, alternate antagonist, almost. But, yeah. Um, so there's, like, the leader of the vampires, and there's Irma Vep, who is, like, also one of the vampire leaders, but not the grand vampire. And yes. Irma Vep is, is almost this, like, the uh, the quintessential femme fatale character. She's, like... yeah. Not, not technically the first, but it's sort of like possibly even the character that like popularized the even like idea of a film fatale. Mm-hmm. Or and maybe that the I, I I researched this a while ago about like where the term originated from and things like the word vampire was originally used kind of interchangeably with femme fatale, like to describe that type of character. Yeah, I mean the the word like vamp was mm-hmm. was commonly used for a lot for um for certain leading ladies at this time um, and uh, of there course was one irma vep being uh an anagram for vampire <laughs> oh my god so good the, speaking of there's a point where irma vep is captured and uh one of the the the, the head vampires um is in disguise to help get her out and he sends her a mess. He's dressed up as a um, like a priest who is giving people their last rites or or giving religion to the the all the people in the in the jail. And he's handing out cards uh, that say like a little religious phrase on them. And he hands it to Irma Vep and gives her a little look. And because Irma Vep loves anagrams, <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh the 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 phrase that is in the, the that is the religious text is telling her to like jump off of the ship the prisoner ship that right. she's on yeah. and like giving her instructions on how to 
uh, like how to escape. Basically, just and he knew it would work because her name is an anagram, so she loves them. You she know? loves them. Uh, that <laughs> Big character. Fan of anagrams. That character is uh, Sat- Satanus. Um, Satanus, Satanus. I'm not sure. I think Satanus is probably. Uh, maybe it tur- how are you supposed to say it? It turns out that um, well, ugh, there's so many plot backs and forths. It turns out that Moreno, the leader of the other gang, also has hypnosis powers, and yes. he can hip- he can hypnotize people by staring at them, and he hypnotizes Irma Vep into falling in love with him and doing his bidding, and he has Irma Vep kill the Grand Vampire, who we've known from the beginning as right. the Grand Vampire. But then it turns out that there is that he's not the full Grand Vampire. Mm-hmm. That the grandest vampire is known as Satanus. Yes. Um, That's his and... name. <laughs> yeah. There is, uh, uh, very briefly, there is a, 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 a hilarious sort of title card uh, sort of editing moment where it says, uh, Moreno, was, Moreno was falling in love with Irma Vep. And then hard cut from that title card to them having, like, a staring contest. <laughs> and uh, it was just like, yeah, that checks out. And, yeah, there there is kind of this thing where he's got hypnosis powers and he, he, hit, he like, he falls for Irma Vep and, like, hypnotizes her. But there's, it's been a while since I've watched these, but I, I remember there being at a certain point this kind of, like, is she actually hypnotized or is she, like, kind of in on it? Um... Uh, I feel like yeah, Irma Vep is always sort of there's like these big villains in Irma Vep is always kind of the character who you're like kind of seems smarter than all the other villains and might right. be kind of like playing them off each other. She's definitely I feel like the other people are are in it for the power and she's just in it because she likes being evil. Yeah, she just she's just likes drama. <laughs> but uh, so Satanas has a cannon is in his apartment that's his big like his big power his big his big you know his big vi- him... villain thing is he, i have an artillery cannon in my house <laughs> yeah that you can pack up in a little suitcase so you can't tell that i have a cannon yeah um so he kind of forces uh you know the the rival gang of uh moreno and irma vep to to join up with the vampires um, and they do a bunch of, like, kind of cool heist stuff. Um, and, uh, at one point, Philippe, the, like, heroic journalist, like, lead character, uh, manages to capture Moreno and Irma Vep. Um, and I believe, Moreno, I believe, is killed off screen. By being yeah. hanged, which I th- I thought was going to be like a trick. I was like, oh, he's not really dead. Yeah, but you know, he never a lot of back. people. Apparently, a lot of people who were working on this kept having to leave to go do World War One. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, sorry, I gotta so, go again. World War One's happening. <laughs> so they they were having some like having to recast a lot of people or kill people yeah. off screen, that kind of thing. And this was being shot in in france during world war one so it, yeah. it makes sense i mean they were getting bombed by zeppelins and shit i will i will say because I, because i brought attention to it earlier that um i the, the heroes of phantomas going 
like going real hard after going after like criminals makes sense because they're um detectives co- cops yeah uh, yeah but this this is a, a journalist like a star journalist whose beat is the vampires yeah and but like there is so much of him just like taking the law into his own hands oh and doing wild <laughs> the craze like just straight up committing crimes oftentimes he he is like not only just like breaking the law but also like violating journalistic practice because yeah. he, he there is a point where he takes out a pistol and just intimidates somebody with the pistol into giving him the information that he wants for his story yeah. that is another thing <laughs> that uh reminded me of of Tintin Tintin in those comics and cartoons and movies and things is also just a journalist but it's like not a child mm. but it's like clearly very young yeah and Tintin is just like traveling the world like ostensibly i guess writing about all these things but he's just like you know raiding tombs and like <laughs> fighting gangsters and stuff <laughs> finding uh you know sunken treasure um you know maybe maybe journalism was just a much more uh a much wilder profession back then it seems like it seems like he's such a star journalist, which maybe is like not as much of a thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. Twenty um, four hour news cycle really killed that the star journalist. Yeah. Um, and no more like flamboyant crime gangs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's around this point that Mazamet gets sent his son to look after, and uh, we are told that his son was thrown out of school for quote incorrigible laziness and irresistible penchant for jokes in bad taste (laughs) and immediately i'm like i love this kid (laughs) um and but so then his son is like using his detective skills to help his dad find the vampire's hideout which is like ah you love to see it it's fun it's a lot of fun Um, and he gets some great moments um as, yeah, as, he, he uh, has a whole, like, showdown with Satanus. Yeah, and shoots him. Yes. He gets, <laughs> he shoots him, and then uh, Satanus picks him up and starts choking him before, like, the police bust in. It's it's a lot. It's very intense. But he's very savvy. Like, like he, br- yeah. he, he goes in, he pretends he's a garbage picker boy. Uh, who's returning the you know, silverware? Yeah, <laughs> returning the silverware to, to to Satanus that he pulled out of his trash. Uh, and while while they're going to fetch, while the butler or whatever is going to fetch Satanus, uh, uh, Mazamet comes in and hides inside of the chest. But Satanus has this really cool like wall that has a mask attached to it, uh, and he can and put he'll... his face. Up into the mask and look through uh, the wall, yeah. and look through the wall, uh, and his eyes just pop out of the mask, and it's shown in this kind of cutaway shot. So Satanus can see everything that's going on. He knows that uh, that Eustache is trying to uh, pull one over on him. Uh, so he he starts kind of threatening his, his pops, who's inside of the uh, inside of the chest. And then, you know, rather yeah, he's, than he's, take he's that... he's hiding in a chest during this, right? Yeah, yeah. There is... I, presumably to jump out at some point, but then uh, uh, Satanus locks the chest, locks him inside the chest. Oh, right, yeah, because he knows that he's in there. Um, I'm sure we've mentioned this at some point. 
earlier about either this or uh, Phantomas, the other serial that we that we covered. But Louis Fouillard loves putting someone in like a small hidey place, like a chest <laughs> or like a laundry basket. Or, oh like, wow, the, I don't know the, if the we tr- have talked the about the trunk that. of a car. It happens yeah. at least once per episode. Yeah, at least wardrobes. Wardrobes, uh, people, like hiding behind curtains, definitely. Yeah. There's yeah. so much of that. Um, <laughs> there's also a lot of kidnapping. Like I feel like uh, Philippe, the star journalist, gets kidnapped probably also maybe once per episode. Yeah, um, and a lot of the time it's like a, a crook around the neck that they're yanking them down from a third story building. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that too is that's a very specific thing that happens multiple times in these also. Um, but just like the characters hiding in things is like such a big part of this. And it's something that I love because that's something that I used to like to do as a kid and it always seemed like maybe would come into play more mm. in adult life and never really did. You know, it's, it's something you maybe see if in, like, you were a journalist. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's like in Raiders of the Lost Ark or like adventure movies. People, people are hiding in stuff a lot of the time. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I thought that would be a skill I would use more. Um, but so, uh, there, at some point around this time, um, in one of these episodes there, we are introduced to, so, uh, Irma Vep during this whole, um, sort of, uh, anagram business, uh, to get, she's tipped off that the, the prison boat that she's on is going to get blown up by, by Satanus using his cannon. Um... And then, so she jumps off the ship, but then, like, everyone thinks she, she blew up on it, and it's it's revealed that she is still alive, and she kind of returns to the uh, the old vampire hideout uh, with a new leader for the vampires after uh, Sataness gets, uh, Satanus, whatever his name is, gets uh, arrested, and the new leader of the vampires is named Venomous great um <laughs> which leads us to the next episode being titled the poison man mm. all these all these titles are amazing too the titles up till this point have for the these episodes that we watched were the specter the corpses escape the eyes that mesmerize uh satanus and the lord of thunder yeah and so then, and then these last two are the poison man and the final one is the bloody wedding the bloody wedding George R.R. really uh, was a big fan of, of the vampires, <laughs> I think. The penultimate episode, The Poison Man, um, uh, the vampires are out for revenge against, uh, on Philippe. Uh, they're going to poison him and his, his got a new fiance, Jane, and they're having an engagement party, and uh, they poison all the, all the food or all the drinks. Um, the only way that they uh, are saved is that Mazamet gives uh, gets gets drunk and gives a really long speech, and so during <laughs> that speech, the landlady is able to discover that you know all the the food's been poisoned. Um, uh, and Philippe tries to you know hide his fiance away to keep her safe at a hotel, but Irma Vep hides in the trunk, as people in these Fuyad things are, you know, bound to do. Yep. <laughs> um. Uh, that, there's some, like, twists and escapes, and there's this, there's a really cool, like, chase shootout on top of moving train. 
Yeah, well, it starts as a car chase. This was this was. It's a like really, a whole like, long high octane. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Like, it was a it was a car chase that transitions to a top of the train chase yeah. uh, and they, gunfight. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was that was really cool, and that was like the kind of closer on the episode. Really, really great. Um, it's also that it's like it's 1916, so they the only way they could shoot this stuff is just like just drive some cars all like along a bridge. All right, and just like all right, go climb on that train and like shoot guns you know <laughs> um so just like it it holds up as like an exciting set piece because you're still seeing something really exciting happening you know it's not like yeah even if it's being edited in a sort of or being shot in a, a sort of much more old-fashioned style than we're used to seeing now it's still a like damn this is like a cool thing that we're seeing so yeah we, we jump forward i guess a little bit ahead in time with the last episode, the bloody wedding, uh, Philippe and Jane are married. Um, Mazamet meets and falls in love with the widow of this guy who got poisoned, um, who goes to a psychic to find out who murdered, uh, her, her husband. But the psychic turns out to be one of the vampires. Of course. So Augustine, this widow and Jane, uh, both end up kidnapped at the vampire mansion. And that kind of leads us to our big finale set piece. Yeah. Which has like, this, this last episode has so much iconic stuff in it. Um, mm-hmm. it uh, and the set piece at the end is great. But when, the, when the two of them are being kidnapped, there's a diamond ring cutting through glass to sneak yeah. into the, into the window. Um, there is a bomb with a really long fuse, and you're waiting for the bomb to go off. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's and there's also a grappling hook that uh, Philippe uses to get up into the vampire yeah. mansion. Uh, uh, so in, in the mansion, uh, Irma Vep and Venomous are, I guess, having like their own engagement party or something with all this like crazy dancing. I don't know if you talked about this either. There's like. I feel like every time Irma Vep shows up or, like, goes to, like, the nightclub, there's always, like, a scene of, like, wild dancing happening. Yeah. Um, which is always fun. And, yeah, there's this big, like, kind of, like, police siege on the mansion. Yeah, um, like, with with also, like, uh, with Philippe, uh, oh, another kind of iconic, like, set piece is that... Uh, you know, they get away in the car, and, and Mazamet shoots the oil tank, and so he's able to follow the oil back to the vampire yeah. hideout. Um, so, Philippe follows the oil, and he basically, like, stakes the place out and sets up the grand finale, which I think is, is really well done. He um, he kind of, like, cases the joint and, mm-hmm. and sets everything up so that... Um, the vampires, when they try to escape at, during the raid, will uh, fall deeper into his trap. So he's laying all of these traps, uh, uh, Home Alone style, mm. um, uh, for all the vampires. And then he brings the cops over later that day. I, I do feel like this finale gives a lot of a lot of the characters like their own nice little kind of moments to shine. Um, mm. Like that thing, like I don't know, Mazamet is is such. Or could could have been such a just like just a buffoon of a character, but I like how they they give him moments like that to show that he is competent and it's like there's a reason why he's around, 
that it's like he is actually kind of good at the crime solving stuff too sometimes yeah i mean honestly i feel like he's more of a crime solver than a buffoon uh but he is the comic relief Mm -hmm. um and uh uh, so, uh, uh, Venomous and, like, most of the vampires are all, like, shot or chased out on the balcony, which collapses. But Ermavep, being the, the craftiest, kind of sneaks away. And um, hides in a closet. Yes. A lot of hiding. <laughs> um, and then, uh, Irma goes down to the dungeon where the, 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 the gals are, are tied up. Um, and, uh. I guess at some point Philippe like snuck in and gave like gave Jane a gun. So like the final sort of moment with Armavep, who is been I guess the most consistent antagonist over this whole series. Yeah. Um, is between her and Jane, which is kind of cool. I don't know. I I didn't really ex- Jane is up until this point has kind of just been like the like the wife, the wife who like gets kidnapped or whatever, and then like she yeah. kind of gets the big like defeating the villain moment at the end of the whole thing yeah um true. which was a cool little uh character beat i thought um yeah i was kind of sad to see a get killed though because she's such a fun character i was like <laughs> i was rooting for her more by the end of it than i think anyone else just because like she's just fun to watch she's, always she's very crafty and, like yeah, yeah. Scheming and dancing, which are both fun things to watch on screen. She's a performer. And, and, and hiding in in, in boxes. <laughs> she's a, she's a per, she's a stage performer, a master hide and seeker, a, a, a and a crafty crafty villain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, for for all of the uh, for all of the like old timiness and a lot of the sort of like very casual sexism of old movies. It was cool that, like, the main villain of this whole thing ended up being a woman, and then, like, another woman got to be the person to, like, have a big showdown at the end. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like the vampires a lot. It's a fun it's a fun series. Watch it if uh, if you can. I think it's on, it's all on YouTube, right? Maybe? Uh, it's all available In, online. like, various quality? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, it's on Canopy and, you know, Kino and that kind oh, of Oh, right, Canopy. Too. I think that's how I was watching it. Um, and then there's, there's a, a Blu-ray release of it as well, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have the, the Phantomas Blu-ray, but not this one. Mm. Um, I don't know, like, I, I could see myself re-watching this at some point, maybe. Y- yeah, I think um, I'd, I'd like to rewatch in less of a crunched manner. Yeah. Um, and also just like, this is a thing that I will definitely remember and is, is one, one of my bigger kind of like recommendations, I think from Hmm. at least like the last kind of chunk of episodes that we've done. It's like the vampires was very up my alley, I think. Nice. Um, well, I think that, uh, I think we're just down to the last milk in this, in, in the cereal bowl here. Little, little dregs of. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's the best part though. When you, it's like that really, it's been infused yeah. with so much of the cereal flavor. Yeah. You get um, one of those bowls that has a straw attached, and then you suck oh, the, 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 the best. milk out. Yeah. <laughs> the straw bowl. Well, uh, I think that means that it's time for our feature presentation. And now we're 
We're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Uh, I think we'll begin with the most famous film from 1916. Mm. Yes. 16. <laughs> uh, which is David Wark Griffith's Intolerance. Is that his middle name? Yes. His second name? Whatever. Yeah. Yes. Who cares? Um, <laughs> yeah, Intolerance. Garbage man. Intolerance is his big, his big follow-up to his big, uh, hateful piece of shit movie that he made last year. Um, yes. Not as it has sometimes, I guess, been uh, proclaimed to be a sort of, like, apology for that movie or some sort of, like... Uh, Definitely not. It is. It is him fully doubling down, if anything. <laughs> um, Thankfully, it's like not specifically him going. It's okay that I'm racist, and here's why. It's like a little more oblique about him just being salty about being criticized about anything. Right. I. I also. I. I kind of wonder or doubt about it being that much of a direct follow-up to the birth of a nation in the sense where it's all i i've also read that this is a movie about that he made in response to people criticizing the birth of a nation he was like yeah you're just being intolerant of my art or whatever and i i don't really think that that was it either that maybe but um i kind of got the sense it's just a movie he was going to make either way it, it touches on some themes and some kind of visual iconography and 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 storytelling styling that he was working on before he entered his racist mm. era. This um, also, to me, feels a bit more like kind of his magnum opus as a storyteller, I guess, just because it... Hmm. The Birth of a Nation is so specific on, like, Civil War stuff and, like, his weird, skewed idea of the civil war yeah um whereas this i feel like is a much it's a much more ambitious movie i think and it's it's about kind of bigger ideas rather than just like i don't like black people you know it's less him just being a shitty terrible dude and is is some of the sort of like bigger i guess sort of like uh philosophical ideas or whatever of some of his earlier movies um kind of show up in this also and and this is a movie that is kind of taking his directorial formal trademark which is intercutting Mm -hmm. and and just doing it too way too much (laughs) cranking (laughs) it to the the highest degree possible he is just yeah really he's really proud of how many scenes he's able to cut together at once in this one i feel like i I think you're right that it does feel like a magnum opus in a way because uh it is definitely kind of grander and more trying to go for this iconic realm um Mm -hmm. than something like birth of a nation uh and it's also the, the kind of apex of um his style yes um yeah for sure i think um one of the uh i guess sort of for as long as this movie is it's paced very quickly it really moves it doesn't like it does feel long because it is um but it 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 
I thought this movie was going to be a chore to get through, and it was a lot more watchable than I guess I, I thought it might be. Especially watching this next to Vampires. Um, I, I don't mean to, like, bag on Vampires too hard, but, like, <laughs> it, it's, it's like, cinematography is, is kind of plain, and it, like, left me, um, like, a little... Uh, it left me a little, like, distant at times, but mm-hmm. this movie, like, moves, you know? It, oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, um, you're in the emotions. He does, he does big emotions pretty well, this guy. Um, well, that's, and, I would argue this because that's the only type of emotion that he even attempts to put on screen. Oh, yeah, no, he does big, big drama big melodrama yeah um but like at least it's like it's propulsive you know yes this this movie is structured like some of his earlier thrillers where they're like on on a wider on a bigger scale where his his early thrillers are like building tension and as you build tension you're cutting between two things that are juxtaposed with each other to build more tension until the the cutting becomes quicker and quicker and quicker uh, until it's just high tension, quick cutting by the end, mm-hmm. and that is what this movie is on a macro scale between yeah. four different stories. Yeah, four different stories, all taking place in different time periods, that all kind of thematically intersect, or sort of like a lot of times they'll also intercut between similar things happening at once. Like there'll be a chase happening in one of the stories, and I'll be intercutting that with it. A wholly unrelated chase happening in a different story. Yeah, um, I, sometimes I was a little like, I don't know. He, it seems like because this is sort of an art film, he's trying to always kind of have like this meaningful juxtaposition between the two scenes. Mm-hmm. But I sometimes it felt like there wasn't necessarily any kind of like thematic connection between one and the other. Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes it felt like it was reaching a little bit in that in that uh respect um the i think probably the most well-known or the most sort of iconic of the four stories and this is the babylon story which famously he built a massive set for it's very Um, impressive it is very impressive it is like when you see it and like the way it also like just the way it's shot the way that uh billy bitzer shoots it on like this big like giant crane shot it's is very impressive. I was like, damn, that that is a very good shot, though. Like, <laughs> it looks great. It looks, uh, um, yeah. I think even by like contemporary standards, it is like a a jaw dropping shot, just in terms of its scale and its spectacle. And especially when you think that like nowadays that would be done with green screens, you know, there were yeah. thousands of extras there all doing their own thing. Yeah. Uh, while the camera was sweeping through a enormous set. Yeah. Like, I, I ridiculously... Lo- it's, like, so insanely big. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of mind-boggling. Um, it looks very expensive, because it was. I think it was... I don't know. I tried to find some exact figures on, like, what this movie cost, and it seems like no one can agree. But it was very expensive. Um... <laughs> That one everyone can pretty much agree on, um, and I think that 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 like attention to I think set design does apply to some of the other stories. Also, there's uh, 
a good example, I think, is there's there's one of the other one is about this sort of like, I don't like labor dispute, kind of thing of like this the the mean old company man, you know, uh, and the the workers kind of rising up against the 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 big boss man, and we see the big boss man in his office, and it's this like massive room, and it's a huge room. And it's completely empty except for this one guy sitting by himself, like in the very center of the room at his desk. And it's like, man, that's 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 like such a a, a simple but like powerful image. That's like, yeah. all right, I I get everything about what this is trying to be. And when D.W. Griffith does that, it's like, all right, this works. The problem is that he is constantly coming up with like really good imagery that speaks for itself, and then immediately interrupting it with these like insanely overwritten intertitles. <laughs> um, like, the one that I have written down is The Loom of Fate Spins Death for His Father. And it's just like, just show us! Just put a scene <laughs> in, like, you know? It's like, I don't want to read this dumb novel that you're writing. Like, you're making you know, a movie. You're making a movie here. Come on. D.W. Griffith has always been someone who has been very concerned with being seen as a serious artist. Oh, um, yes. And, uh, and, you know, I was just having this conversation, like, unrelatedly earlier today with my partner, where, like, I think that a lot of people will just invoke, like, Western Civ stuff, and, like, just the fact of invoking it. Oh, Sisyphus. I made a reference to Sisyphus. <laughs> Therefore, I'm smart. I'm sophisticated. Ergo, I am smart. <laughs> and like that's not necessarily the case. Um, and but I think that that is a, a common like you know cultural signifier of uh, of um, substance and and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and so that's probably part of the reason why he chose some of these stories and in, in, in this mm. presentation concordantly that's why he chose to make a movie about uh, getting all ready for um, matrix you know it um i just rewatched the sequels and they were better than i remembered them being i'd like i would I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that uh one thing that this movie did which i thought was neat uh and that other movies haven't done uh that i have seen at least uh, is have a kind of like book, like a book opening beginning, right? Like, like in yeah. Shrek, you know, um, <laughs> the classic book opening of, of it's, any it's movie. Like a, it's a thing, and this is the first time yeah. that I've seen it. Where like the the book opens with the title and tolerance. It's you know, it's hearkening to a more respected form. If it wasn't um, already a thing, it wouldn't be in Shrek. So, right, uh, including the Matrix. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there, there's a book, so the, another cool thing is that, like, the intertitles are, uh, for the different eras are on, like, kind of era-appropriate, yeah. like, intertitle stylings, like, mm-hmm. the Babylonian part is on this kind of, like, cuneiform tablet-looking things. Yeah. Uh, and, that like, was, that was a nice st- detail. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, going along with what you were saying about him explaining everything... Uh, one of the book pages that um, that some of the intertitles are printed on top of, and this sort of just like interstitial intertitle that he uses, uh, it has a book that says that that opens to say intolerance on it, and the text in the back of the book says like 
basically the thesis of everything the movie is. Uh, it says, The book of this play is arranged in four parallel plot threads or lines of action, telling four stories with four sets of characters and dealing with four periods of history, all bearing on the theme of intolerance. Intolerance is that thing in all of our natures which causes us to condemn all those who believe differently than ourselves. It has been the same in all ages, and as far back as history goes, intolerance has been the cause of more bloodshed than that of all other influences combined. We will now pause in this thread in our story to pass to a later period where the new faith has become the tool of designing politics in and of, and in itself the cause of intolerance. Uh, so true it is that intolerance ever cloaks itself in the garb of righteousness that it may the more easily improve uh, on the minds of man. Um, so that's what the movie's about. It, yeah, well, it, it it has, like all D.W. Griffith stuff, it has very sort of like, well, you know, the real victims of intolerance are like white men. And it's like, shut yeah. up, dude. <laughs> um, I feel like that was too long and I should cut that out. But um, No, because uh, I, I also think that that is um, kind of an example also of him just like over-explain, like just a kind of very, very much just a kind of stating what his thesis is. Yeah. Oftentimes, just in text of just sort of like a title card of just like, this is what the scene means. And it's like, just show us the scene, man. It's like, blunt, like, definitely. It's a sort of thing. It's like, you're, you're pretty good at it. Just like, just do that and it would be fine. It's also I, I, like, for being a movie that's like so focused on theme, it's such a vague theme. Mm-hmm. Intolerance, you know? Yeah. Uh, Especially considering the axe to grind that it comes out of, um, I, I feel like these all all these stories explore intolerance in some way. But I, I feel like if it were more like of a narrow view on like a type of intolerance, like that might be able to explore the concept more deeply. Whereas like these are just stories of people not liking other people, you know. Mm-hmm. It also like for for all of the um, the sort of uh, to do about it being these like four sort of interconnected stories, I don't really think they connect very much, and I kind of feel like they should have been four different movies. Because I'm pretty sure yeah, it was, and... he was originally going to do two movies, and then decide to combine them and then add two other stories to that to make it this sort of huge epic. And uh, yeah. I don't really think that was a good idea because I, I think the I think the Babylon segment of this movie, like all the Babylon stuff, if you were to cut out everything else and you just kept the Babylon thing, yeah, it would probably be my favorite thing that he's done. I it might mm. be a, a low bar, but um, this <laughs> I think in terms of like actually a like watchable movie with a coherent idea behind it. Um, that isn't like insanely hateful. Um, like all the best stuff is in the Babylon segments. Um, it's the only one where I feel like the kind of melodrama is doesn't feel just like insane. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's the one where like the grandiosity of the kind of tone kind of makes sense and kind of works That's with true. the story. Yeah. Um, whereas the sort of more contemporary ones when it's taking place in like 
1904 or you know whenever or like during world war one there is some like contemporary world war one stuff in this movie it just feels so melodramatic and so kind of like over like ugh, like all right bring it down a notch or two you know <laughs> right because um, it, yeah it's a more it was a more dramatic time i will say that something that i like about um the modern day segment is that you know it speaks to I don't know if this was more normal at the time, but like from our current day, DW's like politics are all over the place Um, because he kind of seems like a socialist. Like he's very like pro worker. He's very like kind of anti-capitalist. His first movie, A Corner in Wheat, uh, was that his first movie? I think so. Um, Was that his? Yeah, I don't remember. Oh, maybe it was an early was movie actually, of his, yeah. at least. Uh, like, it's it's very, like, you know, uh, talking about the exploitation of workers and yeah. the uh, uh, by rich evil people. And that happens here. And, like, there's a sympathetic, like, striking, uh, uh, like, striking factory. And the rich people are scumbags. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Anyway, maybe that just lines up with my politics, I mean, so I like it. Well, <laughs> no, because I, I think two things can be true. Like, he can be a sort of, like, very, in one respect, have sort of much more kind of socialist viewpoints and be really against sort of, like, uh, like wealthy corporations and, like, be all for sort of, uh, like, working conditions and things like that. And also just be a horrific racist who... Only wants good working conditions for white people. <laughs> oh my god! Because it's like, um, and you, I feel like even in the Birth of a Nation, you kind of see that there's like the thing of like, why can't all the white people just get along and agree to hate everyone else? <laughs> like, I feel like that's his big kind of thesis oh, throughout what a his dumb, whole weird guy. Throughout his whole work is just sort of like, no, we should all stop fighting, and by we I mean all the white people, so that we can all agree to hate the rest of Earth. You know, it's like. It's like no, just stop at the first part because you were almost onto something there, and then you took it in a very weird, upsetting direction. Um, do you have anything else on intolerance? Um, I mean, yeah, my my big sort of hot take on it is that it shouldn't be one movie; it should be two movies or four movies. Um, which it was re-released as at, at some point. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. because someone was smart and decided to recut it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because altogether all as one movie, it just, it's, it's too long. It feels, I think, very kind of messy and in, 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 inconsistent. Yes. Yeah. They, they um, don't line up super well. But, like, the, the big famous parts of this movie are, um, are impressive. I was impressed by them. Yeah. Uh, me too. I thought it was, uh, it was all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but kind of speaking of confused politics. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> why don't we move on to, uh, up until now based, but now maybe not so much, uh, Lois Weber, uh, and her film, Where Are My Children? Where Are My Children? Um, uh, and this this is starring the guy who looks gnarly, who I thought was supposed <laughs> to look gnarly 
as a reflection of his character, but then I realized that he just looks gnarly and he's supposed to be the good guy. Um, th- th- this is what I was talking about. Yeah, I, you know, I had sort of been, um, I've been kind of singing Lois Whipper's praises up until this point of like, hey, she's sort of like another like notable woman directing director in America. When in America that wasn't a, a huge thing. Um, and I thought her movies were really formerly, like, on a technical perspective, like, really well-directed, well-made, doing a lot and of I think, cool I new things. And I think some of the most artful movies yeah, that we've Yeah, for seen. sure. And I think that applies here, too. It's just that the ideas of this movie are really uh, uncomfortable and <laughs> not good. Um, and it, it definitely, it took me, it took me watching all of it and, like, reading about it to really even fully get how, like, fucked up this movie is. Um, that's my take on it anyway. I do, I think this is a bad movie. Um, well, I don't know. I think the thing that this movie is about is a bad idea. Yes. Um, I think this movie is, uh, still a, a pretty well-directed, at times... She's very skilled. Pretty, like, powerful, like, emotionally resonant movie. But it is all in service of this idea that is uh, pretty evil. So... <laughs> that that idea that, that we're talking about is eugenics. <laughs> yeah. Which I... At the time of watching this, I didn't know that much of... I knew vaguely what it... Like, the basic gist of it. Um, hmm. But I didn't really know, I guess, like, more the history around it. And early 20th century America was a, a huge boom for, like, the idea of eugenics. And yes. it really... It was popular. It was popular, and it was the sort of thing... I think they even uh, talk about it in the movie. And it's like, ah, it's you know, the talk of the town or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, um, I honestly, I'd put so much stock in Lois Weber that I thought that, like... You know, I thought that she was going to escape the fact of being from 1916. And so when they bring up in this movie the topics of eugenics, abortion, and birth control, I thought that she was going to be on the right side of history with all three instead of just one. Right, yeah. Um, Uh, But so, (laughs) flashback to six months ago when we recorded the last episode, I was in the middle of watching the show The Nick which takes place in 1902, I want to say, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last season of that, which I don't think I had watched when I watched Where Are My Children, it, it gets into the idea of sort of, like, how eugenics started in within, like, the medical community um, in the United States and how prevalent it was and how it was, like, being pushed as, like, a, a genuine, like, scientific idea um and that that show being contemporary is able to be like look back on it on a on a with a very uh critical eye i would say where it, it is very much presented as like holy shit this is a horrifying idea uh right. these people who are advocating for it are bad people um Lois Weber I mean, though to bring, to bring a little more context we were big into eugenics and it, well not us Nazis- <laughs> yeah we we america were yes. big into eugenics and we america were the 
direct inspiration for Nazis. They said, let's do eugenics yeah. like the Americans like, you yeah. know? Just like the Americans. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I believe, I don't know if that was brought up directly in the Nick, but it was definitely, uh, I was listening, listening to some interviews with the cast and they, they talked about that a little bit. Um, but so the, the, they don't bring up, it, they do name check eugenics in this movie, but it isn't brought up until towards the end. I think maybe like two thirds of the way through. It just has a eugenics, a eugenicist point of view, this movie. It doesn't ever use the word, though. I thought that it did. No, no, no. I, like, the main character is said to, is a great believer in eugenics. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and he is the audience perspective character. He's the moral center of the movie. Yeah. He, he is presented as, this is the guy that you should be rooting for and who is correct in his viewpoints. Yes. Um, and, yeah, the movie isn't necessarily a case for eugenics, but all of the, like, it, what the movie is for, what the, what the movie is, is a case for birth control to lift poor and underprivileged people out of poverty, which is a eugenicist point of view, mm-hmm. and a case against abortion uh, for rich people because... Um, because the baby's souls are sad, um, and also uh, because the only reason rich people would want to not have kids is for selfish and and uh, immature reasons, and uh, they're you know bringing bringing nice well off rich babies into the world from a eugenicist point of view is good. Yeah. Um, and so there's some kind of intersecting moralities within this movie uh, that kind of come to this conclusion that the movie has. Yeah, I mean, I walking into this movie, and by walking into, I mean playing it on my laptop. Um, I knew that it was it was a sort of like very kind of hot button movie for the time because because it, it was about uh, I knew it was about birth control and about abortion. Um, but then it, it definitely took me on a bit of a, a roller coaster in terms of where I thought this movie's stance was going to fall. Cause I, I, yeah. I had no idea. And I think, I think like you said, I was sort of like, well, Lois Weber seems like she has like a, she had a good head on her shoulders maybe. And so the, <laughs> the whole time I was like, well, no, it's not going to really double down on this. Is it? And then it did. Um, but yeah, it is, it is like you said, is pro-birth control specifically for uh, the poor and very anti-abortion for, uh, like, wealthy, you know, upper-class women because they're like, oh, well, they they should just, you know, they should just stay at home with their with their wealthy husbands. I'm like, you know. It's, it's such a, like, reductive sexist movie that I was, even for 1916, I was like, who made this? This is so like, <laughs> and it was um, the first American woman director who made. Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were like a, a a couple things that I think might have maybe been played a little differently had they been directed by a male director. Possibly, there's sort of this whole subplot where um, there's like this uh, there's just this creep who's like following 
one of the the wealthy women around. Um, and it, I feel like the way in which it kind of puts you in her sh- shoes and her perspective of like being leered at and being sort of yeah. like uh, coveted and like the the sort of predatory male gaze. I feel like it's maybe something that a male director in 1916 would not have put on screen as well or as accurately. Yeah, unless it were um, David, unless it were D.W. Griffith, and the the leering man were black. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, maybe another one of those scenes was uh, um, so the, the basic setup of this movie is that uh, there is a D.A. who's a believer in eugenics, and his he really wishes that he had kids, but for some reason his wife never uh, uh, gets pregnant. Um, and she prefers to hang out with her dogs instead. Um, <laughs> uh, and it turns out that she and the other kind of wealthy society women, and this is the thing that, you know, is maybe uh, from more of a female perspective, um, like they kind of get together and have like kind of frank conversations that they can't have around other men, uh, around men. Um, and in this movie, though, uh, what they're doing is flippantly getting abortions um that <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds like that's like it seems like an oxymoron i don't think that's anything there's like can you flippantly get an abortion <laughs> i don't know um uh, the the movie basically the movie is saying that she's being immature the reason she's never getting pregnant is because she keeps going to dr malfit i believe his name is um who is a, a doctor who will do abortions? Real, real subtle name there. Yeah, who will do abortions on the DL, um, and so she keeps getting abortions, uh, and uh, she is uh, she and her, the other women that she hangs out with are all uh, uh, getting abortions so that they can keep their their society lives basically, um, and when this um, younger kid gets uh pregnant uh from that uh weirdo that uh that creepo um who is not the creepo that you were you were talking about there's a different character that you thought was a creepo that is not coded that way oh that's right uh, that's right yeah you're right uh but when when one of the younger the younger characters gets pregnant she uh the 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 wife uh uh, the wife or Mrs. Walton uh, advises her to get an abortion, and uh, it turns out terribly, and she dies. Uh, and then they also find out that Mrs. Walton uh, has gotten so many abortions that she can never have kids again. And so this uh, this uh, Mr. Walton, uh, who is the main character is uh very sad because he wanted children and the movie thinks that it his it was his wife's duty to give him the children that he wanted um and uh then the movie ends with them sad and old and childless visited by the ghosts of the children they never had so i i the the credit that i will give this movie is that i think that final image is a very uh, is a is a strong image to end on. Yeah. I think that it both it's sort of like um, 
its use of sort of the the cinematic grammar and and just sort of like yeah it's you know seeing an old couple visited by the ghost of their you know the children they never had is like you know that'll 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 get you a little bit um i just wish that the rest of the movie was not as uh terrible yeah in its in its stances not a huge fan of this one despite having yeah. really liked a lot of lois weber's uh earlier movies um it is i think kind of surprising that this movie really like kind of gets gets into it it's like very much like getting it's into the conversation topics. yeah for sure um and it's definitely handling heavy topics with a degree of like i i don't think it it quite crosses over into the the type of melodrama that like dw is uh sort of more uh accustomed to um it's still i mean it's a movie from 1916 so it is still pretty melodramatic but um it's 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 i mean even though it has the wrong opinions about things it is uh not like lurid she apparently mm-hmm. she was yeah. doing a lot of movies uh at this time some other ones that came out this year that we didn't watch that were kind of more like ripped from the headlines kind of stuff like examining like really controversial social issues mm-hmm. um and it seems like everyone like everyone who would want to be censoring movies always had to give Lois Weber like you know just give it like let her do what she wanted because she was handling this stuff tastefully um mm-hmm. uh even if from our perspective uh some of her takes were incorrect <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but I, I i do think it's sort of like especially having like looking back at like when we started doing the podcast it's like oh yeah 1916 that's like charlie chaplin times like uh, slapstick yeah you know uh ragtime and it's like yeah there was that there was also this stuff um yeah and I feel like it's, uh, you know, this stuff probably for for good reason, did never really crossed, or didn't really survive as long into the sort of like public consciousness. Um, but it's it's very interesting to go back and and look at the the sort of wider range of what kind of stories were being told, um, because I think a and lot it's of times it's, a lot of times it's surprising, you know. Yeah, a nice happy one to end on yeah um i feel like we did a lot of a lot of ragging uh this episode we did a lot of uh criticism i guess would be that the polite way of, of <laughs> well of we saying. are critics aren't we are we are Should we uh, effectively at this point um but i do not have a long cigarette holder or a, a typewriter that looks like a skull my idea of what a critic is is based on the movie ratatouille so Oh, gotcha! It does his uh, his typewriter looks like a skull. His, his typewriter looks like a skull. Reference of his this uh, his apartment looks like a, is a shape of a coffin. I think. Um, you know why this? I was kind of Ratatouille is John the best Lovitz movie initially, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Well, yeah. I guess that'll do it. Um. Glenn, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite? I mean, can I just say all of the vampires? <laughs> I would say episode 10 of The Vampires. I think it's fine for you to say all of The Vampires. Episode 10 was The Bloody Wedding? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know it's it. I watched it so long ago, and it it's it's really kind of blurred together for me. Yeah. So I don't know if I can pinpoint a, a specific episode, but um. Uh yeah, the vampires was definitely I think the thing that I I enjoyed the most uh this year. Yeah. Um. Well. I guess that'll about do it. Uh. Thanks. We have to remember how to who... end an episode now. Yeah, I don't remember. Thanks to anybody who has um, been waiting for this half year or so <laughs> for us to start making episodes again. I hope uh, you'll join us along as we continue on, hopefully at uh, a somewhat consistent pace, uh, but we might not fully live up to the name like we ever have. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. That, that's, uh, the, if, that's the ideal that we, we can strive for. Yes. If you give us a lot of money... Uh, <laughs> you hear that? Stamps.com? Uh, not that we have any venue for for uh, you to give us money, but if we were to have a situation where you could give us money, maybe that would uh, uh, grease the wheels a little bit. We could quit our day jobs and just podcast, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Stamps.com. Uh, DM me on Venmo, and uh, we'll figure something out. Yes. Uh, Can you DM people on Venmo? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so that'll do it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. And if you're watching on YouTube, we have a podcast version. If you're watching, if you're listening on a podcast app, we have a YouTube version that plays the movies along with everything. I realized that I was supposed to say that part at the beginning and I forgot to. Um, uh, but there's a YouTube version that's uh, very fun to watch. And all the stuff is copyright free. So you can, uh, you can watch along with us and mm, see, see what we see uh and yeah uh, that's it uh thank you for sticking around and thank you glenn for joining me once again uh and i guess on that i'll see you next year <laughs>